week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. In 1988, Maurizio Fondriest won the World Championships in Belgium, capitalising on a controversial crash in the closing metres involving Steve Bauer and Claude Criquillion. A 13-man breakaway had forged clear with just three 14-kilometre laps to go on the testing circuit in Reims. One lap later, former world champion and one of the pre-race favourites, Claude Criquillion, broke clear with only the young Italian Fondriest for company. As they approached the final kilometre, the pair held almost a minute's lead over every other rider apart from Steve Bauer, who had attacked at the start of the final ascent of the Kreuzberg and was bridging across. Bauer made the juncture with just 600 metres to the finish line and immediately moved to the head of the trio. Fondriest was clearly spent, so all of Bauer's attention was on the local hero, Krikilion. Bauer led out the sprint, starting almost in the centre of the road, but as he continued toward the line, he began veering to his right. Meanwhile, Krikilion was preparing to pass Bauer on that very side. As the Belgian began to come by with 150 metres to go, inexplicably, Bauer reached to his down-tube shifter to change gear. This momentary lapse of momentum caused Bauer's bike to flick further to the right, forcing Krikilion into the barriers. Krikilion hit the deck, and although he remained upright, Bauer lost all speed as a result of the crash. Fondriest simply could not believe his luck as he zoomed past to take the biggest one-day victory in the sport of cycling. Krikilion, the Walloon favourite, had been denied his chance to regain the rainbow jersey he had won in 1984. The local fans began to boo, but what could the race organisers do? Krikilion had eventually stood up and crossed the line in 11th place. Bauer, on the other hand, had finished second. The commissaires decided that Bauer was to be disqualified, but that Fondriest would remain as the rightful winner of the 1988 World Road Race Championships. In the aftermath, Bauer offered an apology to Krikilion, but the Belgian was unaccepting. Instead, he sued Bauer for assault and sought $1.5 million in damages. It was an unprecedented move which resulted in a court case which lasted years. Bauer said about it just before the verdict was announced, I haven't heard of any riders who believe in Krikilion's case. What riders say about the case is, it's still on, they can't fathom it. Whereas Krikilion was steadfast, he said, without him I would have been the world champion, I want justice. But justice was unforthcoming, as the court ruled in Bauer's favour. To this day, the two don't speak. Bauer said about the incident recently, It was a major distraction. He sued me, and it wasn't an easy time. The case took a lot of time and effort. It was a pain in the ass and dragged on for five years before it turned out as it should and was dismissed. It was just one of the moments that happen in sport. I see him at races from time to time, but we avoid each other. We stay at least two metres away from each other. I'm, I'm an old guy, Killian, and Maurizio Fondriest is actually almost exactly in my era. I mean, I remember his uh, big, beaky, Taylor Finney, styly nose uh, being you know, dominant in lamprey colours in the in the Northern Classics. I particularly remember him descending you know, to the foot of the Moor de Huy past the attractive uh, industrial estates in Flesh Wallone. He was a hell of a rider. Yeah, yeah, and I, I suppose I, one of the reasons I put this in... Well, first of all, it's one of the, one of the more iconic things that has happened in uh, cycling's history you know it's, it's a very famous incident and um, I, mean, I mean again like all of these things it's on YouTube uh, you know over and over it, it's uh, it's definitely worth looking at it's a it's a it's an interesting thing to, to go back and look at exactly what happened mm-hmm. but um, yeah I suppose the other reason is that um, you know it's kind of unfortunate for Fondrius I mean he was obviously world champion in, in 1988 and uh, but that's not you know if you say world championships 1988 and if people do remember the race they don't really remember that he won it they remember the crash between the other two guys mm-hmm. which is unfortunate but like you say um I mean he went on to be fairly dominant although I, I I just read an article there just before we started talking 
Um, it was from 1993, and it was it was after he had had this marvelous year. I'd, I'm sure that was the year you were talking about in Flesh Wallone. He won it, indeed. And uh, he 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 won. Um, <laughs> it, it said in the article he won three classics, and they included in that Milan San Remo, uh, Flesh Wallone, and the Championships of of Zurich. Now, I I don't know what <laughs> most people would include that as a classic, but uh, you know it. You know, it's still three of the biggest races on the calendar, no matter what way you look at it, and. Uh, you know, it, it said um, again in that article that the only the, the only other riders previous the, the two riders previously who had done that was Sean Kelly and Eddie Merckx. So you know that's the kind of that's the kind of company he was keeping with those sorts of achievements. But uh, he he said it himself in that piece that um, he uh, he had two kind of he had two very bad years after he won the world championships. He kind of broke on the scene in '87 and he won a couple of races in. Yeah, uh, you know he won stages in races like Tirreno Adriatico and the Tour de Suisse, and uh, he he did okay in the classics, but but didn't win anything. And then all of a sudden he won this rainbow jersey, mm-hmm. kind of out of the blue. And uh, afterwards, um, he he did quite poorly. A lot was expected of him, and in for nineteen eighty nine and nineteen ninety, he he didn't really he, the big win eluded him. Um, but then, but then, like you say, in, in the early nineties, he uh, I think he won the World Cup twice in a row, and uh, yeah, and then he, he had that great year in ninety three, and um, yeah, I suppose it's just it's a little bit unfortunate that the biggest win of his career is remembered for something else. It's funny though because he was one of those guys, and I, I mean you've got this in your notes about his riding style. He wasn't the kind of punchy Merckx or you know Freddie Martins who we'll talk about later. He was a big, rangy guy, but he was really elegant on a bike. You know, he well, wasn't—he wasn't like Chris Froome, who looks like he's trying to strangle his bike in a variety of strange ways. You know, because he's too tall. He actually—he sat on a bike, and he, his upper body was rock solid, and he—he he pedaled with almost with the style of a Stephen Roach, which is, I think, the highest praise that I can give any rider. Yeah, well, that, that's kind of why I put it in the notes. I, rec- I just I recall this interview with David Miller. I can't remember where it was, whether he wrote it in his book or whether it was some other interview with him, that he, he spoke about Fondrius. And um, I think the two of them were actually teammates. Um, Fondrius was at the end of his career, uh, kind of 97, 98, at Cofidus, and mm. David Miller was just at the start of his. And David Miller said that he used to, sp- he, he used to spend time in front of the mirror at home on, 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 like, on his uh, indoor trainer, Trying to to emulate to, to mock the position of Fondrius, the position on his bike, you know, and he'd he'd have Fondrius on a video, and he'd try and copy exactly what Fondrius was doing because it was so elegant. And uh, I remember he said like Fondrius only had three positions, and it was just you know the the tops, the drops, and and the hoods, mm-hmm. and there was there was no in between, there was no. You know, there was no dilly dallying trying to find a comfortable position. There was just those three, and that was it. And he said it was just this perfect style that he had that he tried to emulate, and he never could. He said, but uh, he he had the utmost respect for his riding style. And his hood's position was very reminiscent of Fabian Cancellara. I mean, it was incredibly aero. I remember him well because, as I say, it was it was the kind of heady of my obsession with the sport. And I mean, it's it's where I grew to love the the frankly psychedelic lamprey jersey. Now. <laughs> Bauer and Krakelian, that was a huge feud, which, as you say, led to, to a big, um, you know, unprecedented at the time lawsuit. I mean, everybody sues themselves at the drop of a hat now. But back in those days, it was a big thing. But Bauer, I mean, he kind of ploughed his own furrow because he had the, the beast, which we talked about, um, you know, with the extended change days for Roubaix. And there's that famous one where um, he, lost, he lost Roubaix by, you know, the merest whisker. 
and and stoically walked away. So I mean, he, he I mean, he was just a he was a realist, wasn't he? Yeah, again, you know, when researching this, I, I looked up a couple of interviews with him, and he's just, he comes across as just amazingly, like you say, a realist and just completely pragmatic about the whole thing. And he talks about that Perry Roubaix, that was in 1990, Eddie Plankert beat him. And, and when they both crossed the line, you know, everybody kind of thought that, that Bauer had won it. And, uh, you know, and eventually they announced that he didn't, and, and he, he was interviewed. I actually think the interview came almost straight after the race. You know, you think this is like the worst moment in your career. This is devastating. I've just lost the biggest race. Because he was totally admit- obsessed by Roubaix. I mean, it was in the way that George Hincapie was. It was a race that he, you know, he almost thought he deserved to win, and he'd, he'd lost it by a whisker. Yeah, and and like for for a couple of minutes, he had won it, you know, and then it was taken away. And and the interview with him, it's just like he he kind of says, "This is the greatest day of my career. I've just come second in Paris Roubaix." Uh, you know, I, I I rode the perfect race. I couldn't have done anything differently. I couldn't have been better. I followed the right moves. I did the right things. My sprint was good. You know, I I came second. That that's that's good enough for me, kind of thing. You know, which is just like I would never be able to do that in that situation. It's just amazingly uh, cool and accepting. It's funny though, actually. I mean, everybody knew. You know, it felt like it's almost um, almost spoiled his legacy with these biting the fanboy till the lance and you know some of these frankly bizarre statements and in, in interviews um, you know from his house in South Africa and, and you know on the Australian special about Tyler Hamilton and uh, the secret race in Lance but that's that's possibly my favourite ligatism ever was after that finish Phil, you know, without a, you know, without a hint of what he was saying, just went and imagine what it's like to be Eddie, uh, you know, or uh, Steve Bauer rather. He's going back to his hotel room with only a masseur to comfort him. <laughs> oh, brilliant! <laughs> oh, dude, those were the days. And talking about those were the days, we'll move on to a story about um, one of the rough diamonds of the sport, Freddie Martins. In 1977, Freddie Martins won the Vuelta España, winning a record 13 stages along the way. Martins came into the 1977 season off the back of one of the most successful seasons ever seen in cycling. He won Amstel Gold, Ghent-Wevelgem, the Belgian Road Race Championships, the World Road Race Championships and eight stages along with the green jersey at the Tour de France. And before the Vuelta of 1977, Martins had already racked up a massive amount of wins that year, including Hetfolk, Paris-Nice and Catalan Week. With Eddie Merckx's career on the decline, in the spring of 77, Freddie Martins was the world's top cyclist. That year's Vuelta was ridden amongst the backdrop of much political upheaval in Spain. The race was also affected by an airline strike which prevented many teams and riders from taking part. Thus, the lineup of GC contenders at the start of the race was far from stellar. But Martins won the opening day 8km prologue by a relatively large 14 seconds over his Flandria teammate Michel Palentier and began picking off stage wins thereafter. Helped enormously by time bonuses, Martins led the race from start to finish. Prior to this, Delio Rodriguez had held the seemingly unbreakable record of 12 stage wins in a single Vuelta, but on the final stage to Mirando Dia Ebro, Martins surpassed this tally, which remains the record number of stage wins by any rider in a single Grand Tour. Needless to say, he also won the points classification by the largest ever margin. Back then, the Vuelta began in April, so Martins was crowned the conqueror of the Vuelta on a Sunday, and the following Saturday, he was at the start line of the Giro d'Italia. Amazingly, Martins won seven of the first 11 stages before being forced to withdraw with a broken wrist. Martins said about that Giro, 
If I hadn't suffered that bad fall in the Tour of Italy in 1977, I would have won the Tour of Italy too. That Giro was made for Francesco Moser. There was a lot of time trialling and there wasn't much climbing and it didn't go very high. Despite his broken wrist, Martins won a total of 56 races in 1977, more than any other cyclist ever in one calendar year, including Eddie Merckx. It remains a record to this day. Freddie Martins, that was a man who wasn't apologetic about uh, making a living on a bike, was it? No, absolutely not. And, and uh, again, when researching this, I, I found this article on the internet and um, it's, it was an interview, uh, recently enough, I think, couple within the last couple of years anyway, with uh, Les Woodland, who has written a good few books on cycling, and he, he interviewed Freddie Martins. Uh, and yeah, absolutely no problem saying it how it is with uh, the races he sold and bought and, and just no, no no problem talking about that side of cycling whatsoever. And uh, just just to clarify something, I, I know last, was it last week or the week before, we spoke about um, the 1977 Tour of Flanders, mm-hmm. which... Um, uh, Roger de Vlamenck. Yeah, Roger de Vlamenck won. Just to sum up quickly, in case anybody else didn't hear it, is that uh, uh, Freddie Martins got disqualified halfway through the race for doing an illegal bike change. And weirdly, the commissars told him he was going to be disqualified at the finish, but let him cycle on. They didn't make him get off his bike. And he ended up in the winning breakaway with uh, Roger de Vlamenck with 40 or 50 or even more kilometres to go. It was just a pair of them. And Roger de Vlamenck paid Freddie Martins to, to just ride for him because Martins couldn't win anyway because he was going to be disqualified so that's exactly what happened Martins told him to the finish for about an hour mm-hmm. and Devlamic nipped past at the end and won and was booed and he stole the Tour of Flanders and in this in this interview with Les Woodland Freddie Martin speaks about this and uh, said that Roger Devlamic, um I, I actually sorry I actually have a quote here in, in the notes um, he said Roger Devlamic promised him uh, 300,000 uh, Belgian francs and kind of reneged on it he, he, he said, what Freddie Martin said was, he goes, uh, we are professional riders. You know, I made an agreement with Roger. I did not r- ride with Roger on my wheel for 80 kilometers for nothing. And now he wants to tell people that we never spoke about money. He paid me 150,000 Belgian francs, only half the amount we agreed. That's typical Roger. But he was good, eh? I don't complain about when he makes a good win, but he is not a man to have as a friend. <laughs> it's funny, I mean, when you think about all the excitement that's going on with, um, you know, Vinokurov and Kolobnev just now, there's uh, there's nothing new in sport, is there? No, I mean no, and and like, you know, I I would hope that in in uh, thirty years or or however long it takes for these guys to reflect on their own careers, that we'd hear all these stories eventually, you know, about just just how much money changed hands and the conversations that that took place and and all the backstories behind that. But yeah, you know, you would hope those things come to light. But I I, I said in the piece that um. um the field for the 1977 Vuelta Espana was less than stellar. And uh, I, I got that piece of information from that book that I spoke about before. It's called Viva la Vuelta. It mm-hmm. goes through it year by year. And it kind of suggested in that book that the field was poor. But I, I, look, I went back myself and I looked it up and it, it really wasn't. You know, there was, it was all, I mean, internationally maybe it, it was poor, but there was all these Spaniards like Luis Ocana. Okay, he was a little bit, he was getting old, but he had come second the previous year. The, the winner from the previous year, Jose Pesaradona, was there. Uh, the second place and the winner from two years previously, 1975, they were both there. I mean, you know, it, 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 it wasn't a poor field. There were, there were riders in there that could win, um, that could put, put, put Freddie Martins under pressure. And they just, for whatever reason, they just didn't. And um, I know uh, one of the major uh, things with Freddie Martins 
um, when speaking about him is his this idea of his mental strength. And when he he gets talked about in terms of Eddie Merckx, uh, the the difference between the two always seems to be said that Merckx was really strong mentally, mm-hmm. and you know he was constantly questioning himself, but he had the the temerity and tenacity to get on with things and and get through it mentally. Whereas Freddie Martin's probably didn't, and. Uh, in in a, in another book, it's written by a guy called Benjo Masso. It's called The Sweat of the Gods. He talks about Freddie Martin's, and he says that um, uh, he he goes so far as to say that Freddie Martin's d- during his career when he wasn't winning, he said that uh, he thought everyone was out to get to him, and he had an exorcist to c- kind of try and remove the curses and demons that he thought people had placed on him beca- because he wasn't winning. <laughs> and uh, but but it also says in in that book. Actually, I'm not sure whether it was that book or Viva La Vuelta. Anyway, one of the books it says that uh, Freddie Martins was really concerned about winning the Tour of Spain overall on time bonuses, mm-hmm. and that this would reflect quite badly on him as a as a winner. And um, be, because uh, you know he was winning so many stages, he won the 13, which is obviously you know racked up a, a quite a, quite a substantial amount of time bonuses, and. Uh, it, it, it says in that book that he really tried towards the end of the Vuelta to, to kind of eke out real time gaps instead of just time bonuses at the end. And uh, like the nerd that I am, I, I went back and I tried to figure, it's very hard to find out um, what what the time bonus rules actually were in these races a long time ago. I tried to figure it out from results list and the best I could come up with was that I think the winner of a stage got 12 seconds, which kind of seems a strange amount. So I could be wrong there, but that's that's what it seems. And I, I have it worked out that he, he won the, the race by two minutes, 51 seconds from the second place rider. And he received, for winning stages, he received two minutes and 26 seconds, which means he would have won the, the Vuelta legitimately by 25 seconds. But he, he also came second once and came third twice. So I'd say it's very, very close as to whether he would have won it on time bonuses alone or whether he would have won it legitimately. And I don't know. I, I, I'd, say it's, I'd say it's very close. But um, he, he, he has... Uh, we just spoke before we started recording. He has this book. It's called Fall from Grace. Wonderful book. Wonder. I mean, that's. that's I've talked quite recently about um, you know cycling books being. I think the phrase I used was in the you know in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. That there's a lot of really dodgy writing goes on in cycling. That gets away with it because you know it's it's a niche. But that Fall from Grace book. I mean, I I, I must have read it three or four times. It's it's a brilliant, brilliant book. I love it to bits. Well, what I was going to say was, if anybody wants to sell me a copy for a reasonable price that isn't a hundred euro, which is the, where what it seems like on Amazon, um, uh, but you can, but have my, that, you can have my copy, mate. I've just a bit memorised it. I'll post it over to you. Brilliant. I'll, I'll mean, get get some juicy bits out of that for for another show, John. I'm sure. It's. I mean, it's it's a, it's a really nice book. I enjoy it, and it's up there with. I mean, you were mentioning Daniel Freeb and and Will Fotheringham with their merch books. It's it's every bit as good as that. It's 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 a damn good read with some juicy juicy stories, as you say. No doubt, yeah, no doubt. Now, he used to complain as well about how in the Belgians actually they almost despised their stars as opposed to the French who celebrated them, didn't they? Well, yeah, I have this other quote here, and again, I'd say this this is um, you mentioned uh, Daniel Friedman, William Fotheringham's books there about Eddie Merckx. Sadly, I have still haven't found the time to read either of them. People are writing cycling books faster than I can read them these days, um, but they're still sitting on my shelf. I, I will read them eventually. I, I I did kind of flick through them slightly, and um, it, uh, they the both of them do deal with this topic of uh, the Merckx Martins rivalry, and um, I'm, I'm like I'm sure like with all writers that came up against Eddie Merckx, 
uh, I mean, you were constantly compared with this, just this cycling god on a bike, and you know, a comparison that you were never really going to win. And uh, this was something that Martins had to deal with, um, like De Vlaminck did before him, and Rick Van Looy at the start of his career. Which is so. I have this quote here, which was what Freddie Martin said uh, recently. He said, "In Belgium, even if you are Eddie Merckx, you can never be the golden boy." Even Rick Van Looy was never a golden boy in Belgium. If Merckx had been born and raised and lived in France, he'd have 20 statues. In Belgium, they are jealous. They are all jealous. Now, in other books that I've read, you know, I, I've i read that, you know, that Merckx was the, go- you know, he was the golden boy and he was, everybody was a Merckx fan, which meant they weren't a Martins fan. Now, I don't know whether this quote is just Martins kind of trying to deal with it himself and say, ah, nobody was popular instead of just ah, Merckx Merckx was popular and I wasn't maybe he, he he's trying to make excuses there I don't know one of the things I've always wanted to do but I've never done and I'm going to do this year because we'll be covering the race is go to the Tour of Flanders Museum uh, where he's I think he's still the curator um, because he he was a great great rider I mean for all his um, foibles shall we say and just just to shake his hand would be a good thing and I'll I'll get that book in the post to you Meanwhile, while we're recording this, my uh, sometime colleague Scott is on a, a flight from London to Edinburgh. I think he's landing. Well, he maybe yeah, he'll be landing in about half an hour, where he's been uh, hobnobbing with the great and good of cycling. Uh, you know, Greg Lamondi was in the bar till two a.m., which is, is somewhat ironic because you know Greg Lamondi was my great hero and Scott was a Fignon fan. Um, and I'm, I'm not bitter at all. You know, I'm perfectly happy emptying pillar boxes instead of talking about the future of cycling. No, you, don't, you, you don't sound bitter. No, You're deal, bitter. dealing with it well. I'm really not bitter. But one of the guys <laughs> who was there, um, and a guy who you went to a Q&A session with earlier in the week, uh, is, is Paul Kimmage, who some people may not realise was quite a useful rider in his day. Here's a story about him. In 1983, Paul Kimmage came within a stage of winning the British Milk Race. By 1983, the Irish team had become the object of ridicule from the British media for their inability to race competitively. But this was about to change. Irish team manager Pat McQuaid had assembled a squad which meant business and was led by up-and-coming amateur rider Paul Kimmage. The stars began to align for Ireland and for Kimmage on stage 5 of the 14-stage race. On the 103-mile stage from Bury St Edmunds to Leicester, Kimmage made it into a 13-man breakaway which stayed clear and moved the Irishman into 6th place overall. That's where Kimmage stayed until stage 8, where again he made it to the front of the race and into the decisive breakaway. Although he dropped his chain in the sprint finish from the small group, he finished 5th on the day just 16 seconds down on the stage winner, and this was enough to catapult him into the race leader's yellow jersey. Pat McQuaid said at this point, My team went into this race without inferiority complexes, something that Irish teams have suffered from in the past. I was told not to bring them over, that results at home proved they were not good enough and that they were too young. A fighting attitude has to come through in the end. They are looking ahead now thanks to Sean Kelly and Stephen Roach. The inferiority complex has gone. They're more ambitious. The Irish team then set about doggedly defending the lead of Kimmage, with recent Ross winner Philip Cassidy playing a particularly strong role in this regard. With just two stages remaining, Kimmage still had the jersey and was 55 seconds ahead of second place, American Matt Eaton. But disaster struck on the penultimate stage from Barnard Castle to Harrogate. After just 13 miles before the climb of the Fleek, Kimmage punctured. The Irish team plan, should such an event occur, was that teammate Eddie Madden would simply give Kimmage his bike. Instead, Madden offered his front wheel to Kimmage just as the neutral service car arrived. 
Amid their eagerness and panic, Madden's bike was fixed before Kimmage's, and the pair lost a couple of minutes on the bunch. Kimmage's teammates dropped back to help pace him, but again, in the throes of panic, Kimmage shed all of them in his desperation to return to the peloton, and impressively, Kimmage succeeded. But then a second mishap. He crashed just before the village of Askrig. This time, Kimmage had less energy and no help to get back on, and he was left wondering what might have been. He trailed in over 13 minutes behind the stage winner and conceded the yellow jersey to Matt Eaton, who defended it on the final stage to become the first American to win the milk race. Kimmage ended the race in 33rd place overall. So you were at a Q&A with Kimmage the other night, weren't you? Yeah, it was great. It was really, really um, fascinating stuff. It was, it was uh, Shane Stokes was asking the questions. Um, this was up in Limerick. And, um, you know, Shane Stokes was up on the stage with uh, Paul Kimmage beside him and he had these prepared questions. And uh, I, I had been to a night like this before with Sean Kelly. And as you can imagine with Sean Kelly, you know, you, you have to ask him about 50 questions before he'll he'll tell you a proper story. You, you know, you're getting monosyllabic answers and, and grunts and shrugs. And, and, and it's it's really, really hard to get a story out of him. Whereas Paul Kimmage is the absolute opposite. You know, he, you'd ask him I, I think I know an Irish person like that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh god well we've all kissed the blarney stone you know it's uh maybe it's not a, maybe it's not good for us maybe we have overdosed but um he he uh i you know you'd ask him a question and uh like some of us he, he he'd talk at you for 15 minutes but um some of the stuff he was saying and and um you know i i knew i was going to this night um before we recorded and um uh I had decided to write a little piece about Paul Kimmage as a as an in to start talking about this, and um, you know, usually when these days when 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 you say Paul Kimmage, you know, you think Lance Armstrong and and Pat McQuaid and the UCI and you know all that, and and like like you said, introducing this, you can you know people for, can forget easily that he was he was a bloody good writer as well, you know, and uh, I funny enough, I had actually decided to uh, write about this milk race. Um, that he nearly won and he was asked questions about it on the night just coincidentally well maybe it's not too surprising but uh it was funny actually the question that was asked was by um his brother piped up you know in these q a nights they they, uh, they passed the microphone out to the crowd afterwards for for, for questions yeah and uh, his brother grabbed the mic and um his brother kevin his, his name is and uh he said uh paul why uh in in the in the penultimate stage of the tour of britain that you almost won um, when you punctured, did you make the entire Irish team come back and help you? And you proceeded to get to the front of us and ride us all off your wheel in about ten minutes, leaving leaving yourself stranded for the rest of the stage. <laughs> kind of in, in a in a sarcastic tone, which got a few laughs. <laughs> but uh, you know, then you know that started Paul Kimmage off talking about this race that he almost won, and he said, you know, <clears throat> again he was quite pragmatic about it, just in in a similar fashion to the way Steve Barrow was. Uh, he, you know, obviously he, he was devastated to, to not to have won it, having come so close. But he said that it, it kind of, um, it really proved to him that he had what it took to turn professional, and it was actually the performance that convinced him that he could do this and that he could actually uh, make the jump into the pros. Because I actually think um, that milk race was the first pro am edition, and uh, so Kimmage was an amateur rider at that time, and he was riding against pros and. Uh, yeah, you know he 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 uh, you know he did show that he had what it took, and you know he defended the lead for a number of days, and uh, and um, he he did speak about it with with, with regret, but also uh, maybe some slight fondness as well that this this was 
the the reason he 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 is where he is today and that he had the cycling career that he had and um but then he he, he kind of sadly he he kind of went on to speak and he got a little bit emotional when he started talking about this he said he was in the 1987 Dauphiné Libre and uh, on the Col de la Croix de Fer and he said his dad was on uh, the the slopes of that mountain and uh Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, maybe just to reverse. Like he said, the the reason he he got into cycling in the first place was because um, his uh, his brother was really good, and what the way he phrased it was that when you've got a brother that's really good at something, uh, you'll either completely do the opposite because you don't want to be compared with him, or you'll try and emulate him. And he said he tried to mm-hmm. emulate him, and because he was looking to impress his dad. And he wanted the, the love and and uh, the the, the uh, yeah the, the, the approval, approval of yeah, his dad as much as anything the approval else. of his dad. So that's that's why he said he became a cyclist. And he he said that his brother uh, Raphael was way better than him, but was very unfortunate with illness, and and it really scuppered his chances. So he said he was the inferior brother physically, but. You know, he made a go of it anyway, and obviously got got a little bit further than his brother. But he said he was on the the, the slopes, the slopes of the Col de la Croix de Fer in the nineteen eighty seven Dauphiné, and he said he was really struggling, struggling to keep up keep up with the leaders. And he was, you know, in the Gruppetto, and he met his dad on the side, and he stopped, and his dad had a bit of food and a bit and a drink from and gave it to him. And he said, in hindsight, all he wanted to say was, "Dad, like, I'm not good." This this is this is what this is about right like I'm at the back of the field here, you know I've done my best but this is this is my level, and and he didn't and he's and all his dad said was you know keep going you're doing well you're doing well you know you're doing me proud come on, get back in your bike now and keep going and and he said he didn't say anything to his dad about, uh his his level as a cyclist and he rode on and and he says he regrets that he said he regrets that little moment, he he should have he should have. Uh, kind of I suppose confessed to his dad that uh, you know he wasn't really going to make it as as uh, as a as a winner in in the professional at, at the professional level which is kind of sad to hear but um it's you know it's funny because I mean the, the the buzz book at the moment and I mean I've I've lauded it to the high heavens is you know the secret race the yeah. Taylor Hamilton book um but you know rough ride Kimmage's book was was I mean, we all knew these things were going on, but it was the first time that it really opened my eyes to what was going on. And theres it's funny because, I mean, Scott's been hanging about, as I say, with the great and the good, and I'm, I'm not bitter at all. Um, and Kimmage is there, but also Greg Lamont's there. And the thing that really struck me about Rough Ride, because when I first read it, I was a, still a huge Lamont fan. And I still am to this day. I, I still think he's the last of the really true greats. Um, was there are some great stories about Greg Lamond being in terrible form in it yeah, as well? Yeah, and he, he actually he spoke about that at length, and he said that. Uh, for, well, first of all, he he said that Greg Lamond is his is was his cycling hero. You know, he, Greg Lamond was just the greatest bike rider he'd ever seen. He said he had more natural talent than anyone. He said like he wanted to be Greg Lamond. Like to be Greg Lamond would have been just the best thing ever to him that you know and uh he said uh you know um in the first tour de france that kimmage rode was 86 and that was when lamont won his first one and the last tour he rode was 89 and lamont won that one as well so like at very close quarters lamont was was just kimmage's hero on a bike and um he he, <laughs> he did speak th- th- then he spoke about um in being in the 1989 giro d'italia which i think was when lamont was really bad 
uh, he was just coming back from his shooting accident and uh, he was trying to regain form for the tour and uh, he, he, he was, you know, he was off the back of the race and I think he, he, he almost abandoned mm-hmm. and, and he, he was really, really poor. And uh, like Kimmich was, he said he was in the Crepetto with him and he was, he was cycling past Greg LeMond, you know, which was quite unusual. And um, what, what, what he said was that, um, uh, what did he say? He said that in, in, in that Giro d'Italia, Greg LeMond was suffering from anemia due to, due to the shooting. And that um, he he actually he received three iron injections uh, to to kind of to get him through. Now they weren't illegal, uh, you know. And he was hmm. medically, you know, he, yeah, and yeah, he need, he required this, you know. And uh, but now I, I don't know whether you're gonna like this, John, now because Greg Lamont's such a hero of yours. But anyway, I'll 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 play on. He said that in 1986 when Greg Lamont won the Tour de France, he was sure Greg Lamont was clean absolutely clean he said he had no doubt but then when he when he said he saw this about the iron shots in 1989 he started to have his doubts and he said well if Greg Lamont is doing that well what else is he doing and then he saw him being so poor in the Giro and then obviously so strong in the in the tour only a number of weeks later he was kind of humming and and you know he was like that that's that doesn't add up to me and I, I I can't reconcile that and he said he Always had his doubts about Greg LeMond in 1989, right up until last week, is what he said. He always had his doubts. And then he said he interviewed Greg LeMond last week for two hours. I, I, I assume we'll probably see it in a, in a, in a, in a newspaper soon, uh, the result of that interview. But he said mm-hmm. he, he grilled him on it. He, he said, the way, I'd say, the, the, you know, only, the way only Kimmage can, I'd say he, he grilled him on it for hours about those shots and the 1989 Tour de France and now he says he's convinced that he was always clean throughout his whole career he he was absolutely clean it's funny actually because I mean I, I remember at the time I mean those iron shots have become the, the stuff a legend for conspiracy theorists and I mean to the point where I, I had a go at um, one of the McQuaid's Andrew McQuaid when you know he accused Greg LeMond of being a cheater the other day and let's just say he lived down to, to his surname and not all of them do. I mean, I mentioned it in the main show, but I've got to say, what a night you had in London with the, the frankly delightful uh, Susie McQuaid. I mean, I, I had a wee exchange with her on Twitter. What, what a cracking lass she is. But um, after, you know, after that, I, I asked the same questions. But I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around how Le Monde would change from, you know, the outspoken anti-doper and the awesome natural talent. I mean, again, we come back to that conversation he had with Lance Armstrong, where Lance said to him, you know, come on, Greg, come clean, you did EPO as well. And Lamont said, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but he said, no, you know, what we've got here is, I've got a natural VO2 max of, you know, 92 or whatever, and yours is about 84. I don't need the drugs that you need. And, you know, with his recent behaviour, you know, even even at the summit that Scott's at in London just now, I've got complete faith that he was clean. And I hadn't heard that story about Kimmage until you t- told me just now. And that actually, it put a smile on my face. So thanks for that, mate. Yeah, no problem. I'm not, I'm not sure if uh, if Kimmage had ever said that out loud either. I, I, I seem to recall that um, he, he was deciding to say that for the first time only after he had interviewed him. So, uh, yeah, so that was that was news to everybody in the room, I think. But uh, yeah, like you say, great, um, great, uh, great to know. I mean, like if if you can if you can pass the Kimmage test, <laughs> I think uh, I think it's safe to say you're you're a clean man. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, th- I think exactly that. I mean, Kimmage is along with Walsh and you know 
um, Ballister and all the others has shown that he's not afraid of the truth, however painful it is. Yeah. So if Kimmage says he thinks Lamont's clean, that's good enough for me, mate. Um, now, one of the notable things about Kimmage in, in recent facts is the the lawsuit with you know the UCI where they sued him for essentially defamation of character, or McQuaid and Verbruggen did with the UCI as a you know. A, a, Conspirator? No, no, that's the wrong word. I'm being unnecessarily pejorative. A partner in that prosecution. Um, did he say anything about the defence fund and the, the activities around that? Yeah, um, probably not as much as people would have expected. You know, uh, it did. He did focus a lot on his own cycling career, which was probably maybe a little bit refreshing. You know, instead of just talking about. Uh, lawyers and 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 drugs but uh ah, he did touch on it and and maybe maybe just to uh just as a precursor to that he did have some kind words about pat mcquade would you believe he said that uh um you know back in his racing days um in um it was the amateur world championships in 1985 i think well that's that picture that's just recently surfaced isn't it or recently been kind of in public uh, public awareness on Twitter of McQuaid as his team manager, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, he was his team manager at the Olympics and and for a number of years at the World World Championships, um, McQuaid was the Irish team manager. And he said, um, I, you know, at the at the, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm getting my years wrong. I think it was 1985 in the in the Amateur World Championships where Kimmich came sixth, which he said was his best ever day on a bike. And uh, he said that Pat McQuaid, to be fair, to give him his dues, like had that team like really well organized really well trained and going into that race better um better organized and ready than anybody and he you know he said he did have kind words from as a team manager he said he was he, he was very good and i know we spoke before about um the 1984 olympics and the fallout from Brit, uh, the british performance and that it was so poor and that the british media slammed the british team and like i said in the piece the irish team were a bit of a, a joke to the to the british you know uh, I, I read an article um it was in this magazine that used to be published it was called irish cycling review mm-hmm. and they and they had a guest british journalist write about um it was about that milk race that kim is nearly won and he, he described the irish as amiable buffoons you know in their efforts to win these races and you know that was was the the perception before McQuaid came along really um and uh you know in that 1984 olympics i remember in the piece that we spoke about before the british were looking at the irish team going why can't we be like them which is kind of laughable now when you look at the british team compared to the irish team now the the tables have turned completely but you know for, for for the for the irish team at the time McQuaid did have them very very well drilled and and you know you know he didn't he he, he's not all, he, or he wasn't all bad, you know. But uh, to, be, to be blunt, though, I mean, even with Verbruggen's patronage, you don't rise to be the, you know, the president of a major sporting institution without having some kind of savvy. And you know, and a smaller focus like that, when he was still, you know, young, passionate, and all that sort of thing, I'm sure he did a cracking job. Yeah, yeah. But then, like, I, with that caveat, he, Kimmich did move on to talk about his. Uh, his lawsuit. I mean, he didn't go into the specifics of the lawsuit, but he he what he did say was that um, you, you know he he would oh hello hello Maggie <laughs> he he said that um he had almost become comfortable with people disliking him that that's the way he worded it that you know for first of all for spitting in the soup and then you know then for being perceived as bitter and you know all this he 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 had become comfortable with this. 
And um, he also said about being bitter that uh, he, he earned straight away moving from being a professional cyclist to a journalist. He, he earned three times more as a journalist than he was as a cyclist and was able to buy a house kind of mm-hmm. straight away. So he said, like, people think I'm bitter because I didn't make it as a cyclist. He said he was grand when he left cycling. You know, he was happy enough. So he said that there was no bitterness there. But uh, but yeah, he said he, he had become comfortable with this and he was struggling. He, he, he was... Uh, and then the, the defense fund came along and he said the way he put it was he said it was the most extraordinary two weeks of his journalistic life that this had happened and he said he just was so overwhelmed and uh, he, he just he, he ever since he said he's been trying to come to terms with being a martyr for this cause and he he, uh, he said he, he, he's finding it difficult enough to, to, to be in this role but that it's uh, he, he's just came across as unbelievably humbled and amazed by what has what has happened and what has been done for him I mean it's one of these things where it's really good to see the guy finally vindicated you know because he's been vilified for so long you know being called by Armstrong the cancer in the sport and all sorts of stuff yeah um, and, and and he said that you know he said he, he said his life was really hard for eight years between 1990 when the book was published and 98 when Festina came up came along he said those eight years were were really bad he said they were really difficult and it was only in 1998 when people began to go oh Jesus you know he 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 wasn't wrong really you know and people began to to take him a little bit more seriously and uh you, you know life became a little bit easier for him um, I, I, I just have a couple more stories, if you don't mind. Um, there, there was a couple no, of really, really more... Crack on, son. Crack uh, on. ...gems that he kind of came out with. One was um, this just this day in his life that he described that just shaped his, his entire future. He said he was... Um, he had ridden the Manx International Classic in uh, 1982. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had flown home and the end of the... He, he was just in time to catch the last stage of the Ross Talton which was finishing in Phoenix Park in Dublin. And uh, he, said he, he said he traveled to the Phoenix Park. And uh, he said he, he was really going for, for a particular reason and that he had seen this girl that he liked that was uh, the sister of a, a rider on the Irish domestic scene at the time. And uh, he just, he'd never talked to her. He said he'd just seen her at races and, and kind of fancy. Like the look of her. Like, yeah, like the cut of her jib. And uh, so he, he went along to this race hoping to see her there in the crowd. And he did. And... Um, he uh, he said um, she she had organised to follow the race in uh, the back of a car of a journalist, and uh, he began talking to her, and he said, and and she said to him, "Oh look, sure, you know, do you want to join us?" So the pair of them got into the back of this car, and so first of all, he had met his wife that he ended up marrying that girl, and that he 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 went along in the back of the car, and the guy driving the car, the journalist, was David Walsh. <laughs> who, who, who he just I knew they were colleagues and friends but he describes him as his best friend that he, he ended up meeting his wife and his best friend that day in the car at the back of the Ross so he just kind of he, he was very uh, he, he was moving speaking about that as well you know that that was that day in particular was just an incredible uh, stars aligning kind of thing and um, I, I thought that was a great story but uh and and there was there was one more thing which is maybe a bit of a sour note to end on, but uh, I just thought it was a, it was another great one. Um, he said he was an amateur rider and he was uh, riding in France for an amateur French team. And he was living in Paris, and uh, uh, David Walsh they they must have been friends already at the time. David Walsh had come over, and he was reporting on uh, Paris Brussels, which was starting mm-hmm. in Paris, and um, 
uh, they were both at the start line. They were standing together, just kind of you know, as the riders were getting themselves organised, just coming up to the to the start line to 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 hear the gun and go. And um, they saw Sean Kelly in front of them, and uh, he said Sean Kelly was never one to uh, check his tire pressure with his hands um, before a race. He said he said he'd just kind of lean up out of the saddle and bounce his bike, you know, off the ground. <laughs> And, and just kind of judge it mm-hmm. on, on, on the bounce he received from the road. And, and he just go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah sure, that's grand. And uh, what Kimmich said was that they were so close. He said he heard the rattle of pills in Sean Kelly's back pocket. Now, I mean, I, like, I, that seemed a little bit queer to me. Like, I, I don't know how you discern the, the, the sound of, of pills rattling. But that, that, that's what he said. And he said he, he said he turned to David Watts and he goes, did you hear that? And they they both looked at each other and goes, yeah, tell you, yeah, I'd say, you know, that could have been that could have been pills, and they were like, Jesus, God, you know, didn't think Kelly was at that, and and then so the the race went off, um, I can't remember who won it, I had it looked up yesterday, anyway, so Kelly didn't win it, but he finished on the podium, he finished third, and uh, later on he was he was he tested positive, tested positive for a drug called Stimul, which uh, Kelly contested he, he he whinged about the the, t- the testing procedure and that was there was way too many people in the room and he was given his sample and all this kind of carry on and but he was eventually suspended for a, a month i think and fined and had a further uh, suspended sentence and uh, you know i mean i again i don't know what the sound of pills in your back pocket is but if, kimish wasn't wrong that day and he said what the, the reason he was telling the story was that um he said right then was you know when the seeds of doubt began to began to grow in his mind about what, what, what the hell was going on in this sport you know he wasn't pro at that stage and uh, he said um he, he what he described that day as uh, as was the origins of rough ride began that day when when, mm. when that happened he said those, those are the, the the seeds started to grow for, for, the, for the book that eventually came out of his head in 1989 well, one of the—I mean—one of the themes we keep returning to, or one of the the topics, is how difficult it must be for these ex-pros, because they were different times, you know, and, and we have to judge them within the context of those times. How difficult it must be for them to have to, you know, discuss, for example, the context. Well, well, one of the—I mean, I, I always find it almost painful listening to, and we talked again about you know Jack's Jack Thurston's interview with Stephen Roach, and um, you know when Frank uh, tested positive. During the you know the tour, listening to Kelly talking about it, it must be hard when you know these guys were were doing whatever it took to make a living because I mean those were different times they weren't big bucks. Well, clubs. well, I I um the the question that I asked I I was given the opportunity to ask a question and uh, I actually asked two and I regret it now I I asked a kind of a stupid question as my second one but my first question was um uh what did I say I said back in your racing days um. When you were kind of when you were discovering and knowing that your colleagues and and teammates were were doping, uh, was it important or or, or even possible f- for you to separate the cheating sportsman from the man, or are those two things inseparable? And uh, he, he you know he didn't answer immediately. He thought about it for a while and he he uh, he said that you know that. He, he he said he liked a lot of his teammates and he had a lot of respect for them. And he said that he he knows that if the decision to dope wasn't made so easy, that they wouldn't have done it. Mm. And that that's the way he had to view it, was that th- this decision was just made so incredibly easy. And, and, and that, you know, um, the, the 
their their character was tested and that he he i don't know he he kind of struggled to answer it to be honest and he he kind of gave an answer i i what what i regret was i should have followed up instead of the stupid question that i asked secondly i should have followed up and said well you know paul do you, would you not extend that same kind of sympathy to riders now you know you 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 might know these riders as well as you knew your teammates but you know they're still humans. They're still, you know, these men with 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 emotions, and and they're you know they're not just names on a page with doper next to them. You, you know, uh, is it not the same for them? And mm-hmm. I I should have asked that and I didn't and I regret it. But uh, I'd be interested to know what he says because he 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 did seem to make a distinction between his own teammates and the guys that he used to know, and dopers now that he 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 so. He, that he pigeonholes so black and whitely into the, the doping category yeah. and I, yeah I, I, I regret not asking him the follow up question maybe another time anyway I'm, I'm going to call call matters to a close now because we're I think we're probably going to end up with a longer show than the, the Velocast which is you know usually an hour long, this may well be our longest this week in cycling history ever but fascinating topics as ever you can follow Killian on Twitter and, and he's Irish Peloton uh, I'm on Twitter as W John Galloway, and please, please engage. I mean, that's we talk to loads of people on there. Uh, if you've got any questions for Killian, you can get in touch by emailing velocast.cc at gmail.com and, and just put question for Killian in the title. But other than that, we'll be back in a fortnight during the off season. We're, we're taking two weekly bites until we hit the tour down under, so we'll be back in a fortnight with another edition of this week in cycling history. Thank you.